0: Point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond, and you are listening to another episode of Locked Blazers, part of the Locked Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode, we are continuing our discussion of the best teams in Blazers franchise history. Last week, we discussed the 1977 championship Trailblazers. This week, we're moving on to a team that didn't quite do it. Specifically, we're going to focus on the 1991-92 Trail Blazers, but I don't know if it's totally fair to take this particular team in a single season. It's more of an era, a three-year run where the Blazers were the best team in the Western Conference. They made two trips to the NBA Finals, and the year that they didn't, they won 63 games and won the West. But in any case, I believe this team, combination of Overall talent and overall achievements, the 91-92 team is the best team of that era, the best team of that run. Even if you take them collectively together, this is the best version of that group. Probably. When discussing the 1977 championship team, I said that's the best team in, in Blazers franchise history and it's not close. And I still pretty wholeheartedly believe that. I don't think it's particularly close. I think this is the best team. Excuse me. I think that 77 team is the best team. And I think there's a handful of others that are involved. But if at the top of that handful, at the top of that stack, is this 92 team? Is this, is this team that made the finals, lost to Jordan and the Bulls? So what i gonna do is dig in a little bit on what made that team so good and how they got where they got. Close out the show, talking about a little bit of a link between, I think, what has been the hallmark of the best teams in Blazer history. But let's start just talking about the main actors. What made this 91-92 Blazers team so good? If you're a fan of the team, you know who made them so good. But let's pretend you don't for a second. The point guard was Terry Porter. He averaged 18 points per game, 3.1 rebounds, and just shy of 6 assists. At shooting guard was Clyde Drexler. He averaged 25 a game, 6.6 rebounds, 6.7 assists, a team high 6.7 assists. On the wings, you had Jerome Kersey, 12.6 points per game, 8.2 rebounds, 3.2 assists. And Buck Williams, who had been an all-star with the New Jersey Nets, averaged 20 and 10, a a double-double for a long time in his career. Spent eight seasons with the Nets before coming over to the Blazers and kind of being that piece that put this team over the top. He was the difference in them being a pretty good team in the middle 80s to being this elite team of the sort of turn of the decade. He averaged 11 points per game, 8.8 rebounds. And for the second consecutive season, Buck Williams led the NBA in field goal percentage, shooting 60.4% from the floor. The dude just finished a lot of dunks. At center was Kevin Duckworth, a little slow, not much of a defender, but a creative offensive player who could score pretty much anywhere inside the arc. He could shoot a little bit, had a lot of little flip shots, and could score out of the post. He averaged 10.7 points per game, 6.1 rebounds. But the team was really good because of their depth. This is what made them so special. When I talked about the 77 championship team, I really highlighted that that's what made them so good was that sure their frontline players were fantastic and I don't I don't just mean the front court I, I really mean just like the headline players the Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas were fantastic but what made that team so good was its depth and I think that is a trend with any good team I don't think that's exactly breaking news to say the trick to making an NBA finals or competing for an NBA championship is to have many good players but the difference in this blazer team and the team that had made the finals two seasons before is that they had kind of rounded out the back half of the rotation. Rotations were tighter back then. Uh guys weren't coaches weren't going 8 and 9 deep if they didn't if they didn't have to. 7-8 players was totally fine having five guys play 37 plus minutes was very normal. Um this kind of got out of hand in the in the following decade of, of shortened benches, but uh, if you had a top eight that could play, and I still think this is the case, but we don't see it as much in the regular season, but if you had a top eight that could play, you could really play. But the difference when this team and that team that had made the the finals in 1990 was that the the depth had kind of rounded itself out in a more reasonable way. Cliff Robinson, who was a rookie on that first championship team, was now a high usage sixth man. He could play any of the front court spots, mostly played three and four, but he was big enough, long enough to play a little bit of small ball center. He averaged the third most shot attempts on the team, 12.4 points per game off the bench, but also double digit field goal attempts. Like if if Cliff was in there, he was going to be part of the offense and a big part of it. He also chipped in 5.1 rebounds. Uh this was sort of it wasn't Cliff at his best he was still building towards Cliff at his best but this was as good as he had been in the league to date. And then the really big part was Danny Ainge. The Blazers had acquired him in the previous season when he a- he actually was better in the previous season straight up. Uh he was he shot better from the field, he averaged more points um just statistically, he was better. He had a great playoffs for this 92 Blazers team, but the prior year when the Blazers won 63 games and won the West, Ainge was better. But he really rounded out that uh, that bench unit. Like, you could play him next to Porter. You could play him next to Drexler. You could play him alongside the two of them and play with three guards. Um, he could handle the ball and bring it up as a point guard. He could be a scoring guard. Uh, he did Jim Ratty, Danny Ainge stuff. And he was also just really good. The back half of the rotation included Robert Pack, a rookie who they had gotten in the draft that summer, Mark Bryan, a backup big man, and Ala Abdel another big off the bench. But those guys weren't as important when the playoffs came. It really was those top seven with Porter, Drexler, Kersey Williams, Duck, and then Cliffy and Danny H. Those are your top seven who really made this team go. The previous year is perhaps the lost year of this Blazer era a chance to make three consecutive finals. They lost to the Lakers in the last year before uh, Magic Johnson retired due to his HIV-positive test. Got into Game 6 and lost to the, the hated Lakers. So 63-win team in, 90, in 1991. That didn't get it done in the playoffs. But in 92, they bounced back. And in fact, not only was Ainge better in the previous regular season, Terry Porter was better. Statistically, Porter had probably the best year of his career in that 90-91 year, but it just didn't work. It didn't all come together, and the special thing about this group is that it all came together. So what I want to do in the second segment is talk about how they made it happen, how this group came together and made the NBA Finals. We've covered the actors, who the main characters in this play were. Now let's figure out how the drama played out in the second segment. All right. So we're talking best teams in Blazers franchise history. The 1977 championship team is the best team in Blazers franchise history. But the 1991-92 Trailblazers have a claim to it. I don't think Bill Walton had as good a Blazer career as Clyde Drexler. I think as we stand here today... In April of 2020, I think Clyde Drexler is the greatest blazer of all time. You've heard, if you listen to this podcast before, you've heard me say it. I don't think he'll end up the greatest blazer of all time. I think that's going to belong to Old Letter O, Damian Lillard. But for right now, Drexler is the greatest blazer of all time, and he's the reason he's the greatest blazer of all time is that he was prolific, and also that he he carried, helped carried rather, these teams to two two title games, two title series in three years. They won the West back-to-back seasons, including this year in 1992, when they finished 57 and 25. They were an elite defensive team, third in defensive rating accord according to Basketball Reference. Now, in 1992, I'm not sure they were checking points per possession stats as regularly as we and freely as we do now. But this team was just elite on the wings. Kersey and Buck Williams flying around on the wings. Clyde Drexler, not an elite lockdown defender, but long and opportunistic on defense. Terry Porter, a big enough guard to be tough on point guards. And Kevin Duckworth, not a defender, but a giant person. And you know what it helps to be? A giant person. It's a really valuable NBA skill. This was an elite defensive group. And what they did best, what they probably did better than anybody in the NBA, was they turned miscues and steals into offense on the other end. This was a deflection by Buck Williams, grabbed by Jerome Kersey, flipped ahead to Drexler, flies the other way down the wing, gives it to Porter in the lane, and as the defense is converging, he flips back, and Buck Williams finishes in the paint. This is who they were. They're a team that lived in the open floor. Even when they got to the finals against the Bulls, they're living in the open floor, flying the other way against the best team in the league, right? <laughs> Running against... By the time they got to the finals, this is kind of uh This, this episode doubles as kind of a retro rewatch. I've watched four or five of the uh, of games from this team. A couple against the uh, Jazz. I watched a regular season game of theirs against the Suns, and I've watched uh, two finals games against the Bulls. So I guess that's five. Uh, this what they were so good at was just turning offense, turning defense and offense really quickly, running off made shots really quickly, just just being athletic. The the wings with Kersey and what really stands out to me when I rewatch these games is Kersey and Williams on the wings are just phenomenal athletes. Clyde is a super duper star, like he does stuff that superstars do. He soaks up bad possessions and scores, but. What made this team so special wasn't that they had a super-duper star. It's that they had this dude who was the the best non-Michael Jordan shooting guard in the league and then studs around him. Terry Porter was fantastic. He made the all-star team in 91. He made it again the following year. Some of it's just a numbers game in the West. But this this team was just was so good because this starting group made so much sense. And then they added Ainge and Robinson off the bench, and all of a sudden their bench makes sense too. They go in the opening round of the playoffs against the Lakers. Of course, they're like I said, they're, they're a 57-win team. Can't fake the funk. They go, but they win the West. They go into the playoffs against the Lakers. Kareem had retired in 89. Uh, Magic had announced he was HIV positive and temporarily retired for four seasons. So this was Byron Scott and uh, Terry Teagle and Vlade Divac. This was a... Decent, but not one of the juggernaut Laker teams. They were kind of, this was the, their dynasty was fading and it was going to come back in a major way here in the 90s. But for a brief period, these were people you could punk. And so the Blazers punked them. They beat them 3-1 in the opening round of the playoffs. In the second round, they got the Suns. Uh, the, the sort of Suns, Rockets, Sonics, interchangeable pretty damn good teams from those from the 90s this was kind of the the beginning of the of the of that um the Sonics weren't quite who they were yet the Suns didn't have Barkley in 92 they were going to get him that summer in 93 he basically demanded a trade from Philly but this was the core of that team that was going to be really good with Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley Jeff Hornacek before he left this team could really play and the Blazers just missed him 4-1 and then you get to the Western Conference Finals, and I think this was a a highly anticipated Western Conference Finals. Stockton and Malone are this tandem that has been very good for five seasons now. Um, they. They're clearly too, You know, they're about to go to Barcelona and play on this uh, dream team, and I think that really elevates kind of both of them. Uh, obviously, what they did at the end of their careers in '97 and '98, making back back to back finals, really elevates them too. Uh, they never missed any games for twenty seasons. I mean, the dudes played literally every night. Uh, but this this was the second best team in the West. The Blazers had been bad in Salt Lake all year long, so going having home court advantage against Utah was incredibly important they got that but then the series kind of played out the way that these sort of heavyweight games against good te- with two good teams play out the blazers you know roll in game 1 with home court advantage they roll in game 2 they've got this 2-0 lead terry Porter has 41 points in game 2 they look like they just they're not they can't be stopped as the best team in the nba jazz come back and win game 3 Jazz come back and roll in game four. Malone's dominant in both those games. Uh, An insane stat from this series is that uh, John Stockton assisted on 48% of the plays when he was out on the court. The dude was just, he just was an absolute conductor. But now it's 2-2. You've got the two best teams in the West, 2-2, heading into game five in Portland. Blazers won a close one, despite Malone going for 38-14, and and then Game 6, which I actually watched last night. It was on NBC Sports Northwest. I didn't watch it live. I haven't been watching these games live. They just haven't worked out for my schedule, but I watched it on uh, DVR later that evening. Um, I was struck by how, how physical the game is. I mean, I think that's kind of played out to talk about how physical the NBA games are from the 90s, but this one was particularly physical. Um... And, and a lot of just off-ball stuff that you can't do now, like pushing guys out of the way, um, jockeying for position. The battle for position down low that Malone gets in with guys is just wild. It's wild. He has 23-19, and 19, but the Blazers dominate the fourth quarter. It's a tie game heading into the fourth. And this was like the we are the better team type of game. Terry Porter has 18 and 10. Clyde Drexler, 18 and 7. Kersey, 18, 5, and 4 blocks. Buck Williams, 15. Duck had 12. Cliff, 10 and 6 and 3 steals off the bench. Danny Ainge hit both of his three point attempts in a game when they take 11 threes. The Blazers took a whopping 11 three pointers, a wild one. Jazz only took 10. But Ainge hits them both. They're huge shots. He finished was with 12. The Blazers basically play seven guys. Mark Bryant had a little cameo. 3007 minutes. Couldn't really handle Carmelo. Glad glad they got Mark Bryant out of there was not a good matchup for him, even with his sick flat top. But I was struck by how physical those games were. I was struck by um kind of not even slow because I the both teams not really jazz but the blazers ran when they can run but kind of when it does get into the half court how much more methodical the game is there's much there's just there's some real freelancing stuff i feel like that is sort of the nature of the space and, pace and space era that we're in now that in this crunch down everyone's taking 17 footers and in uh era of the 90s this was um the, you have to be more methodical and I, I think i was struck by how methodical both teams are But the Blazers win. They dominate the fourth quarter. They win game six in Utah. They hadn't won a game there all series. They had struggled there historically. This was a a series that looked like it was going seven because neither team could win on the road. And the Blazers do it. They do it with balance. They do it with, frankly, with Terry Porter kind of having a crappy game. Clyde having... A, a solid game eighteen seven and seven, but he wasn't spectacular, and he, he never really got loose against a Jazz team that really loaded up on defense, made him take a ton of jumpers. Then they meet the Bulls in the finals, and I already did a whole uh, episode about the one the game two the Blazers won in in Chicago. So I'm not going to go deep on this, but you know Jordan kind of wins the series in game one. He has. He had six threes, he has 35 and a half, he shrugs, um, he's the best player in the NBA and he's kind of announcing it. That's why this team isn't celebrated, The this Blazers era isn't celebrated the same way. Not only did they not win and you don't really remember second place, is that the the image of it is literally MJ shrugging, I don't even know, it's just too easy for me. But this team was fantastic and deserves to be celebrated. What I want to do to close out the show in the third segment is talk about an item I heard Terry Porter talk about last night Um, and something I heard Lionel Hollins talk about with the 77 championship team and I think something that we think about when we think about the best of the Dame LaMarcus era teams. What is the link between the best versions of the Blazers team over 45 years of basketball? That's what we'll talk about in the third segment. All right, still locked on Blazers, still Mike Richmond, and we're still here talking about the best teams in Blazers franchise history, the 1991-92 Blazers, who for my money are the second greatest team in the history of this franchise. All last week, I did a couple different shows, probably about a cool hour of content if you want to go back and listen to it and haven't heard it, about the 1977 Trailblazers. I talked about what made that group so special. I went deep on their playoff run, their run to the, the finals, and I and I shared the best stories from, from that team, the kind of the stories that build the legend around a championship team. But instead of going down memory lane too deep with the 92 Blazers, uh, I want to do something a little bit different. I was reading a story by Jason Quick from 2009. Jason Quick of then of the Oregonian, now works for the Athletic. Um, He's worked other places too. We won't go into Jason's whole bio, but my friend, former colleague, but he wrote a story in 2009 about Lionel Hollins, and basically it was Hollins kind of the stories were these were uh, Jason kind of catching up with uh, Blazers players of yesteryear to to do this like greatest Blazers and blah 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 franchise history and all these things. These little profiles. They're all interesting, some better than others because, you know, the way that a one-off interview kind of works. And Hollins, who I've, I've kind of known in his NBA time, my time around him in the league, is that he's not a particularly good interview. Um, he can be a little bit grumpy. He's not easy to deal with. But in this 2009 interview, I guess he was feeling, feeling good. Because he told Jason um, that what made that team so special, what made that 77 team so special, is that they were willing to pass to each other. They were willing to share the ball. They knew they could cut hard and uh, kind of play with play within the system because if they did the right thing, they'd be rewarded by their teammate. Uh, they had a real chemistry on the court. And that's kind of a, just like a throwaway thing that players say, right? And then I was listening to Lamar Hurd, uh, Blazers broadcaster, interview Terry Porter, current coach of the University of Portland Pilots, men's basketball team. Last night, uh, they were doing... I guess they did an interview on the Blazers social media networks during the replay of that game six against the 92 game six against the jazz. And what struck me about that particular game wasn't that, um, or that interview wasn't that, that Porter was really complimentary of Clyde Drexler um, because he was, he was like, we're going out of his way to talk about how good Clyde was. Uh, And I think Clyde is really good. And it's, but it was funny kind of the way Clyde and the Blazers don't get along the way TP was talking about him. But one of the things he said was that what made, the 92 Blazers so special was that they really shared the ball and that Clyde who led the team and assists this season was kind of the guy who would set the tone for sharing the ball is that he would take shots and he would, he would kind of go to work sometimes, but he wouldn't get bogged down and he would still kind of set the tone for being unselfish and sharing the ball. And, and so they, you know, this was a team that would get out and run because they knew, you know, Buck Williams knew if he ran, he was going to get get buckets. He was going to get, he was going to get a dunk in transition. Jerome Kersey knew that if he cut into space, he was going to get rewarded. And then that got me thinking a little bit about, uh, sort of the, the best teams of, of that I've been around with the Blazers. And the best team I've been around with the Blazers is that probably that 2013, 14 team. That was when I really started covering the team. Uh, I'd worked in media for, in the like, Portland media for a little bit before then and cover the team intermittently here and there. But that year was when I first started to cover them for real, uh, traveled with them in the, you know, to cover them in the playoffs and things like that. And what made that team so special was that they played, you know, what was then heralded as, as Stotts's flow offense and blazer basketball. And they would do this thing at the practice facility where they would ring this bell, you know, if there was a pass where if there was possession in practice where everyone would touch it or it would swing around the perimeter and you give up a, a good shot to get a great shot. And I think this is a little cliche, but what I was struck by just in random interviews with Lionel Hollins, a point guard on that team, with with Terry Porter, a point guard on a team some twenty five years later, fifteen years later, excuse me, and then another another twenty years in the future with this with that Dame West, Nick, Robin Lopez, uh, Lamarcus Aldridge team is that what made those teams so good, when they were at their best, and we were celebrating from being at their best, they were incredibly unselfish. Which made me think of two things. One, I think the most reasonable criticism of the current Blazers is that they're really good on offense, but they don't pass enough, and that they aren't aesthetically pleasing. Some of that is the way the game works. Some of it is just real truth. They got guys who pound the rock. You get Dame, CJ, and Carmelo on the court, that's what you get. The other thing I thought was the 2000 team, the 99-2000 team, back-to-back uh, Washington Conference Finals in 1999-2000 Blazers. They are not necessarily heralded for that, and it's because that was the almost the peak of isolation basketball. We had reached to the point where the, the league had sort of litigated itself out of playing anything other than isolation. the The, the rules were such that you could only defend... In, in a way that led to isolation basketball's art, artificial space as i've heard terry stotts call it in the past so what, what i want to say is that i don't think the blazers' sort of current lack of ball movement is the thing that is going to make them not make the nba finals It's their lack of talent but when you get to that point where you are so good and I, and i still mean i still think this is true what sets the best teams apart is that true chemistry, that true trust and that true balance. What wins in this league is talent. It's, it was true in 1977, it's true in 1992, it's true in 2000. Shout out to the refs though. But it was and it'll be true if they play a championship this year or next year. If there's a 2020 or 2021 NBA finals, talent will win. But what will separate the margins when you get to the top of the league is that chemistry, that on-court trust and belief. And Three random interviews, or two random interviews and one just sort of me thinking about my time around the team, they really struck me, is that that is the link between the best teams in franchise history and the teams that you, the fan, love. When you think about the teams you love the most, I don't know if all of you are old enough to remember 77, I'm sure some of you are, but the teams you love are the teams that shared the ball, that passed and cut and and played with this balance. That's why people love Arvidas Sabonis. So I don't know if that makes a team good and I don't and I don't really I don't really think it 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 separates maybe a little bit g- very good from great. Talent's always going to win, but what will what will last in what makes a a team the best in franchise history is in some ways how they're remembered. And style has a lot to do with how we remember teams. So what I was struck by and what I want to leave you with in this episode is that when you're appreciating the aesthetics of a team remember that those aesthetics that feeling that man do they look fun might last with you more than man they won 54 games the aesthetics will are sort of a a lasting detail they're the thing that uh, that might stick with you that's going to do it for today's episode thank you so much for listening Tell your friends about this podcast. They can find it wherever they already get podcasts. Just search for Locked On Blazers. We'll be there waiting for you. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.